I'm dermatologist and hair specialist, Dr. Jeff Donovan, and I'd like to welcome you to the Evidence-Based Hair Podcast. Welcome to Evidence-Based Hair for the March 7, 2022 issue, Season 1, Episode 5. Evidence-Based Hair is a podcast produced by the Donovan Hair Academy and addresses new research in the field of hair loss. This podcast was created for practitioners of various backgrounds, but regardless of whether you care for patients with hair loss or simply care about the topic of hair loss, this podcast will be of interest. Evidence-Based Hair is for educational purposes and shouldn't be considered a substitute for medical advice. The first Monday of each month is dedicated to androgenetic hair loss and alopecia areata, and we'll be reviewing recent studies in these areas. We'll be reviewing 10 studies from the last month or two, which address androgenetic hair loss and alopecia areata. We'll talk about metabolic syndrome in androgenetic hair loss, and the three to four fold increased risk of metabolic syndrome in patients with genetic hair loss. We'll talk about the efficacy of minoxidil, finasteride, and dutasteride in androgenetic hair loss in males, and a new study which offers us a ranking system for the efficacy. We'll talk about perifollicular inflammation and just how common inflammation is in androgenetic hair loss. This might be a non-scarring alopecia, but it's certainly not a non-inflammatory alopecia. And we'll talk about low-level laser in androgenetic hair loss. We'll move on then to alopecia areata and we'll talk about the risk of infection, hospitalization and death in patients with alopecia areata. The news is good and I'll look forward to sharing that study. Then we'll go on to three fascinating studies looking at the possibility that COVID-19 vaccination triggers alopecia areata in a small proportion of patients. And then we'll look at two large population-based studies which give us some clues about important epidemiology of alopecia areata. The references for all of these studies are in the show notes that accompany the episode. So let's move now to studies of androgenetic hair loss, beginning first with a systematic, systematic review and meta-analysis looking at the association between metabolic syndrome and androgenetic hair loss. So what is metabolic syndrome? Well, it's this group of abnormalities, this constellation of symptoms that increase a person's risk for cardiovascular disease. Issues like high blood pressure, high cholesterol, obesity, insulin resistance, and diabetes, these comprise metabolic syndrome, and these are well known to increase the risk of heart disease. And a large number of studies, and an accumulating number of studies over many years, have made it very clear that patients with androgenetic hair loss are at risk for metabolic syndrome. One of the earliest studies was a study 50 years ago by Cotton and colleagues. It was really a landmark study which showed a link between baldness and heart disease. If you don't know this study, you probably should. It's really one of our earliest studies in this area of heart disease. And so Cotton and colleagues studied 91 males under 65 with heart disease and compared the findings to 91 healthy males. Diastolic blood pressure was the most important factor to predict a person's risk of heart disease, but baldness was also a risk factor. 
And so studies over the next decade and two and three really started showing that metabolic syndrome is associated with androgenetic hair loss, and this is increasing a person's risk for heart disease. So I'd like to review with you this meta-analysis. It's not the first one. Wu and colleagues in 2014 published a meta-analysis showing that patients with androgenetic hair loss have about a 2.7-fold increased risk of metabolic syndrome. Caro Chang and colleagues in 2019 showed similar data, and that is that patients with androgenetic hair loss have about a 2.59-fold increased risk of metabolic syndrome. And so this study I'd like to review with you now, which was just published by Q and colleagues, showed a 3.46-fold increased risk of metabolic syndrome in those with androgenetic hair loss. So this was a systematic review and meta-analysis. It evaluated 19 articles, including 1,342 patients with androgenetic hair loss and 1,189 controls. Study participants range from 68 participants to 202 participants in these various studies. And so the authors showed that patients with androgenetic hair loss had a 3.46-fold increased risk of metabolic syndrome. And when you looked at the differences in males and females, males had an increased risk of about 3.08, but females had an over seven-fold increased risk of metabolic syndrome if they had androgenetic hair loss. So I think this data really is important and highlights these differences between men and women. The authors also highlighted differences between patients who underwent early balding and patients who just underwent normal age-related balding. Patients who underwent early-onset androgenetic hair loss, males, had a 3.88-fold increased risk of metabolic syndrome compared to just about three-fold increased risk in those who didn't have early-onset androgenetic hair loss. So early-onset androgenetic hair loss is increasing one's risk for metabolic syndrome. And so here we have this accumulating data that androgenetic hair loss really does increase a person's risk for metabolic syndrome. High blood pressure, high cholesterol, obesity, central obesity in particular, and high blood sugars. And so the data really are pretty clear. I don't really think we need to wait for a fourth and a fifth and a sixth meta-analysis before we're convinced that patients with androgenetic hair loss have an increased risk for metabolic syndrome and therefore heart disease. And we really don't have guidelines in our field to screen patients with androgenetic hair loss. We very rarely bring up the subject of metabolic syndrome and heart disease in our patients with androgenetic hair loss. And I think we're probably failing our patients in this regard. And we have 50 years of data showing that if you have androgenetic hair loss, you're at increased risk for metabolic syndrome. The data is good. It's not just somewhat good, it's good. And so the time is now that we need to change our practices. You know, I'm a big believer in, in encouraging patients with androgenetic hair loss to eat healthy diets, exercise. 300 minutes of physical activity is what everyone needs, but especially if you have a risk for metabolic syndrome. If you're a smoker, you need to stop. If you don't smoke, please don't start. We need to encourage patients to measure their blood pressure at baseline and then follow it. Don't wait, I say to my patients, don't wait until you're 42, year old, 42 years old until you have your first blood pressure measured. That's not the right approach. I really think we need to measure cholesterol at baseline. If you're 20 years old and you have androgenetic hair loss, do you need a cholesterol? I think so. 
I think we need to know what that number is at age 20, and then we can follow it at 25, 30, 35, and 40. We need some fasting insulin, hemoglobin A1c levels, we need body weight and height, we need to follow a person's BMI, we need to make sure we protect them from the possibility of obesity. I think this is a really important study, this meta-analysis. It reminds us of the increased risk of metabolic syndrome in men and dramatically increased risk in women. I think more studies are needed, but this is a really important study. And so from metabolic syndrome, we move to a study looking at treatment. A study by Gupta and colleagues in the JAMA Dermatology in February. So the authors set out to examine the relative efficacy of minoxidil, dutasteride, and finasteride. So this was a systematic review and meta-analysis, and the authors looked at all studies that addressed use of minoxidil, dutasteride, and finasteride as monotherapy. And so the key endpoints that the authors looked for were terminal hair counts and total hair counts. So what was the increase in the total number of little hairs in a square centimeter area? And what was the increase in the terminal hair count? Thick hairs at 24 and 40 week, 48 weeks. And so the, for those of you who aren't familiar with androgenetic hair loss studies, it's important that a medication or a treatment increase the number of hairs, but it has to be big hairs, terminal hairs that really matter. If a treatment increases the number of really tiny hairs, so the total hair count increases, well, it's hard to know if that really is all that important. But if it increases thick hairs or terminal hairs, that's really important. So this was a meta-analysis of 23 studies. The age ranged from 22.8 to 41.8. And again, these were all males using finasteride, dutasteride, and minoxidil, including topical, including oral. And so there were 15 different treatment protocols that the authors could identify in these 23 studies. Dutasteride, 0.02 milligrams, 0.1, 0.5. Oral finasteride, 0.2, 1, 5 milligrams. Topical finasteride at 1%. 0.25 milligrams of oral minoxidil, 5 milligrams of oral minoxidil, and then 1% minoxidil, 2% minoxidil, 3% minoxidil, 5% minoxidil, and 0.1% minoxidil, and placebo. So all these different study designs, and see, the author tried to make sense of the changes in terminal hair counts and total hair counts. And so there was 11 studies addressing 2% minoxidil and 8%, 8 addressing 1 milligram of finasteride. So 56% of studies were dealing with topical minoxidil, 35% of studies were dealing with finasteride. I think that's really, really important because we're going to talk about comparisons between dutasteride, minoxidil oral at 5 milligrams, and other treatments and we have to remember that 56% of the studies were in topical minoxidil and 35% were in finasteride. So we don't have actually a lot of studies looking at the other treatments. But the authors ranked from most effective to least effective based on their calculations, based on their assessment. Oral dutasteride, 0.5 milligrams being the winner, followed by oral finasteride, 5 milligrams, followed by oral minoxidil, 5 milligrams, followed by oral finasteride, 1 milligram followed by minoxidil 5% topically, and then 2% topically. We're going to review this data now and why we have to interpret this cautiously. What are some things we need to think about as we look together at this data? And so the most effective treatment for increasing total hair counts at 24 weeks 
was 0.5 milligrams dutasteride. And so dutasteride was similarly effective to 5% minoxidil and 5 milligrams of finasteride when the authors looked at all of the data together. The quality of the evidence was low, and this will be a theme throughout the study. But what the authors could show is that dutasteride, although it's similar to 5 milligrams of finasteride and maybe even 5% minoxidil in this review, it was more effective than 1 milligram of finasteride, 2% minoxidil, 5 milligrams of minoxidil, and 0.25 milligrams of minoxidil. And again, the quality of the evidence is low. And so what about terminal hair counts or these big hairs at 24 weeks? Well, the most effective treatment to generate terminal hairs at 24 weeks was 5 milligrams of oral minoxidil. And oral minoxidil at 5 milligrams was more effective than 1 milligram of finasteride, 5% minoxidil, and 2% minoxidil, and more effective than 0.25 milligrams of minoxidil. And so these are terminal hair counts at 24 weeks. The authors found that the efficacy of 5 milligrams of oral minoxidil didn't differ significantly from 0.25 milligrams of minoxidil, 1 milligram of oral finasteride, or 2 or 5% minoxidil. And the evidence again was quite low. It did seem pretty clear that 0.25 milligrams of oral minoxidil was less effective than 1 milligram or 5 milligrams of oral finasteride and less effective than 2 and 5% minoxidil. Let's go on to look at data at 48 weeks, beginning first by looking at total hair counts. So the most effective treatment for generating increases in total hair counts at 48 weeks was with 5 milligrams of finasteride. And the authors showed that 5 milligrams of finasteride overall was somewhat similar in efficacy to 1 milligrams and 5 milligrams, but it was more effective than 2% minoxidil, and the 5 milligrams of finasteride was more effective than 1 milligram of oral finasteride in other analyses that the authors did. And at 48 weeks, there was no data for oral minoxidil, there was no data for 5% minoxidil that the authors could look at, and there was no data for dutasteride. And so when the authors looked at terminal hair counts at 48 weeks, finasteride 1 milligram was the winner. And finasteride 1 milligram overall was more effective than 5% minoxidil, 2% minoxidil. This long-term data is really important. 48-week data is really important. Uh, there was no data here for 5 milligrams of minoxidil. There was no data here for dutasteride. And so we know that for men, 2% minoxidil and 5% minoxidil are pretty similar at, at 24 weeks from other studies, but they really start showing their differences at 48 weeks. So this long-term follow-up data is really, really important for studies of androgenetic hair loss. And you can see we have a lot of good information at 24 weeks, but at 48 weeks, we really don't have much information. And that's really what we need. And so overall, this was a really nice study, but the conclusions are limited. And I think this uh, hierarchy of efficacy from best to worst is nice, but we have to be really careful. So there's a few points that are really important to keep in mind, and that is first, the quality of the evidence is really low, and the authors do a good job of, of mentioning that to us several times. And again, we don't have much data at 48 weeks, and this is really, really important. As I mentioned, 2% minoxidil, 5% minoxidil look pretty similar at 24 weeks. 
But at 48 weeks, it's really clear that 5% is better. So if you're going to look at long-term data and you want good data, you really want to see what's happening at 48 weeks. We have limited data on dutasteride. We know it increases total hair counts at 24 weeks. It looks good at 24 weeks. We don't have data on, on terminal hair counts. We don't have data at 48 weeks for anything with dutasteride. So really, really important. Most studies here were with topical minoxidil and one milligram of finasteride. Again, 56% of the studies were topical minoxidil and 35% were finasteride. So we're really limited in terms of our studies with dutasteride, oral minoxidil, topical finasteride. And so we got to keep that in mind. And we don't really have any good comparative studies. There's, there's never been excellent comparative studies with all of these treatments. And so that certainly is desperately needed in our field. But this is the best we have so far. And this is a very good analysis of what we have so far. And so it's pretty clear that oral minoxidil, dutasteride, and oral finasteride, and possibly even topical finasteride are really key players. Um, the authors showed in analyses that topical finasteride and oral finasteride are pretty similar. And again, dutasteride looks really good, but we, we don't have very good long-term data uh, for dutasteride. The authors showed that finasteride, five milligrams, in some ways looks better than one milligrams of finasteride, but in other analyses they did, it suggested that five milligrams of finasteride was pretty similar to one milligram. And so I think this data uh, concerns me that five milligrams of finasteride could be the norm. And I certainly think we have to be careful. There's not a lot of studies with five milligrams of finasteride. And some of the analyses that the authors did showed that it looks pretty similar to one milligrams. And so I think we have to be careful to, to, to interpret this data, and we certainly need more data looking at five milligrams of finasteride. It certainly could be more effective than one milligrams. I'm not totally convinced, but certainly interesting data, and perhaps men that don't respond to one milligram of finasteride can be changed to five milligrams of finasteride or dutasteride. Certainly there are patients in my practice that say, I do better on five milligrams than one milligram. So this is interesting data. I think we need to look at it further. We certainly need more studies in oral minoxidil. There's just one five milligram study that the authors included here in their analyses. We need to study it beyond 24 weeks. We need to study it to 48 weeks. We certainly need more studies of oral dutasteride. As I mentioned, it data looks good, but this is just for these little total hair counts. We don't really have good terminal hair count data, and we don't have data at 48 weeks, so we need that. Oral minoxidil seems better than topical minoxidil. So that's exciting. I think this data is going to really excite a lot of people. The study doesn't look at side effects, and I think it's important to remember that oral minoxidil has more side effects than topical minoxidil. But it's exciting data. It puts five milligrams of oral minoxidil perhaps ahead of finasteride, depending on the data and how it's analyzed. Not all men tolerate five milligrams of oral finasteride. Some get headaches, dizziness, chest pain, heart palpitations. Um, not everybody does, but I think this is exciting data, and it really highlights that we need more studies with oral minoxidil for men long-term. Not short-term, long-term. The study also puts 5% topical minoxidil on, on the map still. We shouldn't be deleting this from our toolbox. It's still a pretty helpful treatment. It's not nearly as effective as the others, but it's still a helpful treatment. And these studies don't really examine patient ratings and physician ratings, what patients think about the hair loss and physicians think. And we really need those in our studies. You can increase terminal hair counts and you can increase total hair counts, but if patients think this wasn't worth it, then it's probably not worth it. So patient and physician ratings of hair, count, of hair density changes 
are really, really important. And again, this study doesn't really look at side effects at all, so that's really important. Dutastride's on the top of the list. Would I put a male who has severe depression, hospitalizations for depression on dutasteride? Probably not. Would I put a male who has infertility issues, low sperm count, and is trying to father a child on dutasteride? Probably not. Would I put a male with cardiovascular disease, uh, low blood pressure, on other medications that promote fluid retention on oral minoxidil? Probably not. So, this hierarchy is really helpful, but it's not a template for how we treat hair loss. We treat hair loss by taking histories, examining patients, and talking to patients about side effects. That's really important, and this, this study doesn't change that. We certainly need more studies with topical finasteride, and this study really does address that topical finasteride looks pretty good, and the limited data so far suggests, you know, might be as effective as oral finasteride, but this wasn't given a lot of attention in this study. For those of you who recall a prior video, um, the top 20 studies of 2021, we talked about Piracini's study um, looking at 0.25% spray, topical finasteride spray, and how in a study of 323 patients, it performed just as good as oral finasteride. And so we really need more studies with topical finasteride. It's proving to be quite useful and perhaps more effective than we imagined before. We don't really know how to make it up properly. Um, meaning that the topical finasteride that's made up down the street might work differently than the topical finasteride that's made up the street. And so we certainly need more studies in topical finasteride. The study also doesn't address using these medications less than daily. What happens if you use dutasteride three times a week? What happens if you use finasteride uh, three times a week? And so that's not addressed, and that's certainly something that, that is done often in hair loss. A patient might be on oral minoxidil, and might be on three times a week, 0.5 milligrams of finasteride. Patient might be on oral minoxidil and use dutasteride twice a week, so that, that's not covered. The study also doesn't address women. This is a study of males, and the, the data doesn't apply to young patients, and the data doesn't apply to patients over 65. And so this is largely a study of men in early and middle age. And this is a study of minoxidil and finasteride and dutasteride. It didn't look at how it compares to PRP, laser, other treatments that are available. Don't forget, this is a study of males using minoxidil and finasteride. Very, very interesting study. I think it opens the doors to further study, and it really highlights where dutasteride and oral minoxidil sit right at the top of the list. A surprising role for five milligrams of finasteride being perhaps better than one milligrams, but not in all analyses, and an emerging role for topical finasteride. So I think it's, it's really exciting data. So let's move on to talk about inflammation in androgenetic hair loss. And inflammation is very common in androgenetic hair loss. It's much more common than a lot of people realize. And so androgenetic hair loss really is an inflammatory scalp condition. And, and I get a lot of biopsies back and I'm asked to help with interpretation of a lot of biopsies. And a lot of physicians are surprised by all the inflammation that's sitting there in the biopsy and as well sometimes the perifollicular fibrosis. But perifollicular fibrosis and inflammation are very much a part of androgenetic hair loss and this study really highlights that by Plante and colleagues and I'd like to review this with you. And so we often think that androgenetic hair loss is a pretty histologically bland process. You get big hairs, 
converting to tiny hairs, but actually the big hairs convert to tiny hairs and there's inflammation that accompanies that. And the inflammation is found in the middle of the hair follicle. This is data that's been known for quite a while. And so the legendary dermatologist and dermatopathologist, Dr. Whiting, first showed that about 40% of biopsies from androgenetic hair loss show perifollicular inflammation. inflammation. So there's inflammation down there around the hairs. In 2016, Ramos and colleagues showed that inflammation is more common around hairs that are miniaturizing. So perhaps there's a link there for what the inflammation is actually doing. In 2009, uh, a study showed that perifollicular inflammation is present early on in the course of androgenetic hair loss, long before the perifollicular fibrosis starts setting in. And only over time does the perifollicular fibrosis become more common and then the inflammation decreases. So it seems like inflammation is really, really relevant in androgenetic hair loss and it's part of the early stages. Androgenetic hair loss is a condition where we see perifollicular inflammation, perifollicular fibrosis, sebaceous glands being present, and no death of the keratinocytes in the outer root sheath. And so don't be surprised if you see inflammation and scarring, fibrosis. That's what androgenetic hair loss is all about. So this was a retrospective review of biopsies of androgenetic hair loss and alopecia areata as a control. There were 58 patients with androgenetic hair loss and 38 with alopecia areata. And perifollicular inflammation was present in 87.9% of androgenetic hair loss. So the vast, vast majority of androgenetic hair loss biopsies had inflammation. The inflammation was present in the infundibulum, or the upper part of the hair follicle, in 58% of androgenetic hair loss samples, compared to 36% of alopecia areata. It was present in almost 80% of androgenetic hair loss biopsies in the isthmus, or the middle of the hair follicle, compared to 55% of alopecia areata. And no biopsy of androgenetic hair loss had inflammation in the bulb, which is what we would expect. That's a feature of alopecia areata. And 63% of biopsies from alopecia areata had inflammation in the bulb. And so when we look at inflammation in the middle of the hair follicle in the isthmus, in 75% of cases it was mild, 17% it was moderate, and in 7% of cases it was severe. It was rated as severe inflammation. And so a quarter of biopsies from androgenetic hair loss in this study had moderate to severe inflammation. So don't be surprised if your biopsy from androgenetic hair loss has a lot of inflammation sitting down there. In 86% of biopsies, the inflammation was sitting next to the miniaturized follicles as well. And so this really highlights that this is probably pretty relevant, uh, that this inflammation is probably participating in what's driving androgenetic hair loss. And so the authors concluded that most cases of androgenetic hair loss have perifollicular inflammation. And most of the time it's at the isthmus. And don't be surprised if you see moderate to severe inflammation because it'll be found in a quarter of your biopsies and it's often present near miniaturizing hairs. And so the current thought in androgenetic hair loss is that you get inflammation early on. And this inflammation is what drives fibrosis and what drives miniaturization. Of course, all the steps haven't been worked out, but inflammation is really important. We haven't fully addressed inflammation that well 
in treating androgenetic hair loss, but it's certainly a very important topic. And many researchers are very, very aware of this inflammation and trying to address it. So finally, we move on to a study of low-level laser in the treatment of androgenetic hair loss, a large study from China of 1,383 patients. So low-level laser is a very fascinating treatment protocol. There's lots of different lasers on the market now. And we owe a lot of this credit to a Hungarian researcher, Dr. Mester, who's often viewed as, viewed as the father of laser medicine. Dr. Mester set up some studies in 1960s, uh, shining laser lights on the backs of mice, trying to see if they would induce cancer. And what he found with a 694 nanometer ruby laser is that it didn't induce cancer, but it triggered hair growth. And so this was really the birth of laser medicine to, to promote hair growth. But it took a long, long time until 2009 before we had the first randomized controlled trial looking at the role of laser, low-level laser, in androgenetic hair loss. And that was a study of the Hairmax comb. And that led ultimately to the FDA clearance of low-level laser devices. And so Q and colleagues examined the potential benefits of using a 650 nanometer low-level laser device called the eye helmet for treating androgenetic hair loss. This was a helmet device with 200 lasers and light-emitting diodes. Each bulb was 5 milliwatts, which is very typical to what we use for our standard laser devices that we're all familiar with. And for the eye helmet, the treatment is 20 minutes every other day. So it was a large study. They had 928 patients with mild androgenetic hair loss, 455 patients with moderate to severe androgenetic hair loss. Two-thirds were male. Study participants used the device for around 10 months. Those with mild AGA were using it for about 38 weeks. Those with moderate to severe were using it for 40 weeks on average. So the authors looked at efficacy. How well did this, this laser work? By looking at the answers to six questions. A little bit different of a study. They looked at, was the oil secretion reduced? Was dandruff reduced? Was redness reduced? Was hair loss reduced? Was new hair growing? And did hairs transform into thicker hairs? If the patient answered yes, or the investigator answered yes, they got one point. If the investigator answered no to one of these six criteria, they got zero points. And so a score of zero was rated as not effective. A score of one to three was rated as moderately effective. And a score of four to six was rated as significantly effective. And so you could be rated as moderately effective, that the laser was moderately effective if it just reduced redness and oiliness. But unless it did something good to the hair, uh, you couldn't get a score of four, five, or six. And so I looked at the data for patients that had a score of 4, 5, or 6, significantly effective. And so for patients with mild androgenetic hair loss, 27.7% had significant growth. And for moderate to severe androgenetic hair loss, it was 20%. One in five had significant growth. And the authors showed that certain groups were more likely to have significant growth, including males, those that were using the laser for more than a year and a half, and those that had redness, itching, or dermatitis. And so about one quarter of patients in this study had significant results. That's similar to other laser studies when you look at significant results. It's difficult to get a sense of the proportion that have moderate results or mild results in this study because of the way they chose to analyze the data with this scoring system. But about a quarter of patients had significant results. 
And what's interesting here is that males were found to have better results in sub-analyses than did females. And when you look at other laser studies in the literature, this is supported by other studies. A 2014 study by Monk and colleagues, this was Dr. Trube's group, showed that 45% of males using one laser device had a significant improvement compared to 14% of females. This was in the International Journal of Trichology. And what I also found interesting is that patients that had redness and itching and dermatitis were also more likely to have significant results. And so it's increasingly clear that these low-level laser devices have anti-inflammatory benefits, at least to some degree. It seems they have, in, have benefit in seborrheic dermatitis. It seems they have benefit in, in scarring alopecia like lichen planopilaris, at least to some degree. And so patients that had inflammation, redness, scaling, they were more likely to have a significant benefit. And so I think we have a lot more to learn with low-level laser, but certainly this is interesting because it highlights, again, potential benefits in males. It works in men and women, but perhaps more effectiveness in some males. This deserves more study. And very interestingly, patients with androgenetic hair loss that have redness, itching, scale, oiliness, perhaps these are patients that may benefit from our lasers. So from androgenetic hair loss, let's turn to alopecia areata. And several studies from the last month looking at alopecia areata will look at COVID-19 and alopecia areata. Do patients have a higher risk for infection, hospitalization, or death? We'll talk about vaccines, and we'll talk about two large population-based studies, which give us some important epidemiological information. So a study by Yale and colleagues published in the International Journal of Dermatology was a cross-sectional study of the risks associated with COVID-19 infection. Now we know certain groups are at risk for more severe COVID-19, and there's a long list. Male patients, certain minorities, patients with diabetes, cardiovascular disease, obese patients, patients with lung disease, high blood pressure, those who are immunocompromised or have cancer, we know that these patients are at increased risk for more severe COVID-19 if they get infected. And so the authors wanted to look at, do patients with alopecia areata have a higher risk of infection, hospitalization, or death? Death after the 30 days of, uh, within 30 days of getting infected. And so they looked at five California-based hospitals for a total of 447,000 patient visits analyzed over a period of just about a year, March 2020 to February 2021. And they looked at the demographics of patients, their PCR results, their alopecia diagnosis, the comorbidities they had, whether they were hospitalized and whether there were any deaths within 30 days of testing. So the infection rates were 7.6% in patients with alopecia areata. And this was very similar to the rates in patients who didn't have alopecia areata. And so this provided the authors with some evidence that the rates of infection don't seem to be increased overall. And the rates were similar in men with alopecia areata compared to women with alopecia areata. But when the authors went on to look at the differences in f infection rates in Hispanic patients with alopecia areata compared to non-Hispanic patients with alopecia areata, they showed there was an increased risk of infection in Hispanic patients. 12.5% of Hispanic patients were infected compared to 6% of non-Hispanic patients with alopecia areata. And this was significant. Hospitalization rates really weren't increased in patients with alopecia areata. 
They showed that about 8% of patients with alopecia areata were hospitalized over this time period, compared to about 13% of patients who didn't have alopecia areata. It looks like there's less hospitalizations with alopecia areata, but the data wasn't significant. And so the only conclusion is, is that it doesn't appear that there's an increased risk of hospitalization. Unfortunately, there were no deaths in the first 30 days after uh, being infected with COVID-19. So the conclusion here is that patients with alopecia areata have similar outcomes to patients who don't have alopecia areata. And so this is really encouraging data. There's no increased risk for infection, hospitalization, or death. And so now let's turn to some very fascinating studies looking at the risk of alopecia areata after a COVID-19 vaccine. It's pretty well known that some vaccines increase a person's risk of alopecia areata. It's rare, fortunately, but the published medical literature has case reports and larger case series of patients developing alopecia areata after zoster vaccine, toxoid influenza, hepatitis B, Japanese encephalitis, HPV, and clostridium vaccines. And so there's lots of good data that suggests these vaccines induce some kind of immune response in a very, very small proportion of patients, such that it triggers alopecia areata. And now we have data emerging that suggests we should probably put the COVID vaccine on that list. Fortunately, the risk seems low, but let's take a look at the data together. So there's been two prior studies, one by Essam and colleagues, one by Rossi and colleagues, which showed that patients with a history of alopecia areata developed alopecia areata after COVID vaccines. ESSAM was a study of the AstraZeneca vaccine where a patient with a prior history developed alopecia areata. Rossi had three patients, two had AstraZeneca, one had Pfizer, and they developed alopecia areata. But let's look at three new studies. Lee and colleagues published a study in the International Journal of Dermatology in February 2022 looking at the risk of alopecia areata after vaccination. What was really important about this study is that this patient had no history of alopecia areata. So it was an 80-year-old man who developed rapidly progressive hair loss in the facial area after the Pfizer vaccine, dose number one. And again, he didn't have any family history of alopecia areata or autoimmunity of any kind. He didn't improve with clobetazole. He worsened after the second dose and he progressed to alopecia totalis and he didn't respond to immunotherapy. And so there's this data emerging that vaccination may trigger alopecia areata in susceptible patients, but some patients aren't clear in terms of what their susceptibility is, so there's a lot of unknown factors yet. But Bardazzi and colleagues was a study from Italy showing that not only does the vaccine trigger alopecia areata, but the infection can too. The actual COVID-19 infection can. And so they presented six cases of alopecia areata, three developed after infection, with COVID-19 virus, and three developed after the vaccination. So let's take a look first at patients developing alopecia areata after infection. So there was two females and one male. They developed alopecia areata about two to three weeks after infection. One of the patients had a history of alopecia areata in the past, but 
two of the patients did not, and all of the patients responded well to corticosteroids, and they resolved in four months. Data for alopecia areata after vaccination was different. Two patients developed alopecia areata after the Pfizer mRNA vaccine, one developed alopecia areata after the Moderna mRNA vaccine. Two of these patients had a prior history of alopecia areata. And what the authors showed in these six patients, which is by no means conclusive with six patients alone, the patients that had alopecia areata after vaccination seemed to have a more severe kind of alopecia areata, more hair loss, than patients who developed alopecia areata after the COVID infection. Higher SALT score with vaccination compared to natural infection. And so not only does vaccination induce alopecia areata in susceptible individuals, but so does infection. We really don't know the magnitude of the risk, but we know that there's mounting evidence that suggests it might be related. A study by Skolan and colleagues is published in JAD Case Reports, February 2022, a larger study looking at the risk of alopecia areata after vaccination. Here, a study of nine patients who developed alopecia areata after the COVID vaccine. Six had Pfizer, three had Moderna. Three of the nine patients had a prior history of alopecia areata. And overall, about six of the nine patients had some kind of autoimmune disease history. In two of the patients, their alopecia areata came about one to two weeks after the vaccine, dose number one. And in seven patients, it occurred about one week to four months after the second dose. So it happened either after the first or the second, but it could happen quickly after even the first dose. Four had patchy, limited alopecia areata. Two had widespread. One had alopecia totalis and one had alopecia universalis. And so we have this emerging, increasing data that both vaccination and infection can induce alopecia areata. Limited number of patients. The authors of Skolan and colleagues reminded us that when you look at the adverse events reporting database in the U.S., there's there's been about a thousand reports of hair loss so far in the you know, many hundreds of millions of people that have had COVID vaccines. So we have a thousand. So we don't really understand the true magnitude of the risk, but we know that it's reasonable to put COVID vaccines on the list of vaccines that cause alopecia areata. We don't really know if the risk is one in a million. Is the risk one in 10,000? Somewhere in between? We really have no idea. More study is clearly needed. It does seem that a history of autoimmunity of some some sort increases one's risk based on the limited data we have so far. It does seem the risk is low. A lot of patients will be quite worried by this data. The risk is very, very low as we understand it so far. But it does seem that alopecia areata developing after vaccination might be a more aggressive form and, you know, may need more aggressive type treatments. And so more data is clearly needed, but really important data that um, I think we'll be hearing a lot more about over this year. And finally, two very interesting population-based studies which give us insight into alopecia areata, which were recently published. Dr. Matt Harries published a very nice study with his colleagues in the British Journal of Dermatology, February 2022. 
This was a large population-based study from the UK. So this is UK-based data. And the authors set out to describe the epidemiology of alopecia areata. How common is it? What's the incidence? What's the prevalence? What are some factors that are associated with alopecia areata? And so this was a database of 4.16 million adults and children that they were able to access. And so these population-based large database studies are, are really, really valuable. It's interesting to look at studies of 100 people and 200 people, what happened here, what happened there. But conclusions are limited. But when you have a study of 4.16 million patients, this is powerful. And so it was thought to be pretty representative of the UK population. So this is data from patients that are visiting a general practice. So these are UK general practice records. So the authors wanted to estimate the incidence and prevalence of alopecia areata as well as other factors. So they calculated the incidence at one in 3,846, or 0.26 per 1,000 person years. So the authors would predict that next year, one out of every 3,846 individuals in the UK will develop their first episode of alopecia areata. The prevalence was 0.58%. So 0.58% of people in the UK have had alopecia areata in their life so far or they have it right now. And that works out to about one in 170 people. So one out of every 170 people that you pass on the street in the UK have had alopecia areata or have it right now. The onset peaked at around 25 to 29. The median age at diagnosis was 31 for men and 34 for women. Alopecia areata was slightly more common in females, not by much, but slightly more common in females. There was a difference according to different racial background, and the highest incidence was in Asians, with a threefold increased risk when the data was compared to those of white ethnicity. And in this study, the incidence was similar in white patients and black patients. What was particularly interesting is they identified two other risks. Patients with low Socioeconomic status were more likely to have alopecia areata compared to those with higher socioeconomic status. And patients that lived in cities, urban areas, were more likely to have alopecia areata compared to those who lived in rural areas, a little bit higher. The most common treatment in general practice was topical steroids. And so this is a really interesting study. 4.16 million patients to draw some interesting conclusions. It really is one of the largest population-based studies to date. And it puts alopecia areata incidence at 1 in 3,846. You know, that's pretty similar to other estimates. Mirzoev and colleagues in, in 2014 put the estimate at 1 in 4,760. The data is pretty similar. And that's always encouraging when you have similar data. The prevalence in Dr. Harry's study was 0.58. You know, as hair specialists, we often tend to quote 2%. I often quote 2.1% of the population has alopecia areata. The study kind of reminds us that, you know, yes, one study suggested 2.1%, but that might not be the number. It might be lower. A recent study in France by Richard and colleagues put the estimate at around 1%. And here, 0.58% of people in the UK had uh, alopecia areata either now or at some point in their life. So um, that's really helpful data. This study certainly adds to the confusion about how race impacts 
the chances of developing alopecia areata. Here, patients of Asian background were more likely to have alopecia areata compared to those compared to white patients. The incidence in black patients was similar to white patients. In other studies, including those in the U.S., uh, black patients have a higher risk of alopecia areata compared to white patients. And some studies have suggested Asian patients in the U.S. have a lower risk of alopecia areata. So I think this confusion is good. I don't see it as bad. I think it's good. It simply tells us we don't really fully understand how race impacts alopecia areata yet. I think it's a really important thing for us to study to understand some of these risks. There's lots of emerging data looking at different populations and how alopecia areata affects them. And so this study is probably tells us that we're probably right and we're wrong. When we keep saying that alopecia areata affects men and women equally, that's kind of almost dogma that, yeah, it affects men and women equally. That might not be accurate. It seems that certainly for younger patients that might be the case, but this data suggests that once you start looking at patients 50, 60, 70, 80, 90, that perhaps alopecia areata is more common in women. And this data here in Dr. Harry's study suggested that perhaps alopecia areata was twofold increased likelihood in, in patients over 50 than younger patients. And so it adds new information about socioeconomic status as well. I think that's really important. Patients of lower socioeconomic status are at increased risk. What are the factors that drive this? We don't understand. Patients in urban areas are at increased risk compared to rural areas. What are the factors? We don't understand. You can hypothesize all you want. We, we don't understand. People like to say pollution, stress. Who knows? Maybe it's noise. Maybe it's lighting. Maybe it's traffic. Maybe, who knows? Uh, I think more studies are really needed, but it's certainly very interesting uh, and, and really a wonderful study. Finally, another population-based study published in the Dermatolo Dermatology Online Journal from October uh, last year that I want to just highlight quickly, which, which is useful as we think about Dr. Harry's study. This was another one of these large population-based studies here from the U.S. looking at National Ambulatory Medical Care Survey data over a 10-year period. And so the authors extracted information related to visits for alopecia areata in the ambulatory setting. There was 2.2 million weighted visits. Isn't this wonderful that you have this kind of data? 4.16, 2.2 million. This, this is really wonderful data. In this study, 65% of patients visiting a doctor in the ambulatory setting were female. Average age was 37. 35% of all visits were in those 21 to 40. And this was one of the more common age groups. 50% of all visits were in those under 40 and 50% were in those over 40. The top three diagnoses in alopecia areata was depression, seborrheic dermatitis, and thyroid disorders. Depression was found in 4.3%, seborrheic dermatitis in 3.5%, and thyroid disorders in 3.1%. What was really interesting is that the risk of seborrheic dermatitis here, when diagnosed by a dermatologist, was 28 times higher compared to other diagnoses. And so there seems to be this tremendous increased risk of seborrheic dermatitis in alopecia areata. Other studies have highlighted that as well. Topical steroids were prescribed in 34% of patients, one quarter had steroid injections, 5.8% had minoxidil, and one out of every 10 patients visiting the dermatologist had steroid injections and topical steroids together. So this is interesting data. It really highlights that both this study and Dr. Harry's study really highlights that topical steroids are still very much a part of the treatment for alopecia areata. So say what you want, but 
Topical steroids, steroid injections, and minoxidil are first-line treatments for patchy alopecia areata in the present day and have been for many years. They're not first-line treatments for advanced refractory alopecia areata, no. But this study really captures that what are patients being treated with out there in the real world? Well, patchy alopecia areata at least is being treated with topical steroids. One in 10 patients are getting steroid injections and topical steroids at dermatologists. So really helpful data. We certainly have exciting treatments for advanced alopecia areata in the works, but minoxidil steroid injections and topical steroids are the key toolbox tools to reach into for patchy alopecia areata. So that's it for this week, everyone. I'd like to thank you so much for joining me and for your attention. We've reviewed several studies in androgenetic hair loss, including the risk of metabolic syndrome in patients with androgenetic hair loss, both men and women, perhaps a large increased risk in women up to sevenfold and in men three to fourfold. We talked about the efficacy of various treatments for androgenetic hair loss and where dutasteride, oral minoxidil, five milligrams of finasteride and one milligram of oral finasteride fit in a hierarchy of treatment efficacy. We talked about perifollicular inflammation and just how common inflammation is in biopsies of androgenetic hair loss. We talked about low-level laser, how it seems to work better in males, and how the presence of redness, scaling, oiliness, flaking, dandruff, may be associated with better outcomes and more study is needed in that regard. We talked about alopecia areata and some very reassuring data that patients with alopecia areata don't seem to be at risk for a higher chance of infection, hospitalization, or death. We talked about this emerging data highlighting that some patients, albeit quite rare, may develop alopecia areata after COVID vaccine, both with mRNA vaccines and in non-mRNA vaccines. This will undoubtedly be an important subject area for future studies, so stay tuned. Lots of gaps missing in this area. And we looked at two large population-based studies, one 4.16 million patients, the other 2.2 million patients. Patients. Identifying some really important epidemiologic information relating to alopecia areata. Thanks again for joining me. Let us know what you think about our content to rate or comment wherever you're listening. Please do so after today's episode. If you'd like to connect with our office to give us your feedback or to learn more about our training programs at the Donovan Hair Academy, you can email us. We're at info at donovanhairacademy.com. Next week, we're back with the second Monday of the month. And the second Monday is dedicated to the four T's, traction alopecia, trichotillomania, telogen effluvium, and tinea capitis. And I'll look forward to welcoming you back here on Evidence-Based Hair.